0: Welcome to Cathedral of the Rockies Amity Podcast. My name is Tyler, and I work here with Pastor Ben Kramer at Cathedral of the Rockies. Today's sermon continues our series with the sermon title, The Bible You Did Not Know. I love this title because there are so many intricate details about the Bible that sometimes get missed or forgotten. I was introduced to Jesus through a tradition that thought it knew everything there was to know about the Bible, uh, but I later found out that this was just one of the many lenses in which we can read the Bible, this particular view that I was introduced to. For example, today's sermon examines the story of Jonah. This was a story that I first believed to be a historical account of a prophet named Jonah. And in fact, most of the Bible I was thought of taught to be like, this is all just historical retelling of events that happened. Um, however, when I learned about the importance of literary genre and how the different books of the Bible fit many different genres, my perspective on the story of Jonah changed. In fact, I've learned that the book of Jonah is likely uh, satirical in its composition, and that is to say it's trying to prove a point through some like kind of outrageous humor, um, at least outrageous humor for the time. And something like that really changes the way we can read a book, and it opens new ways in which or in how we can understand the cohesive story that the Bible is telling us. And with that, Pastor Ben will break down the story of Jonah and how this reading reveals something about the character of God. Enjoy!
1: Thank our musicians again. That was just so wonderful. And this is the first time I've ever seen a Yucca bass. Basa Yukalele? Ba be, whatever you want to call it. The ukulele bass. it was beautiful sound. I love that. So last week we talked about literalism and contradictions. And I want to talk today about something that's often pointed out in the Bible as a contradiction, either by those who read it as scholars or those who are critiquing the Christian faith. They'll point to these things as contradictions. But really what I want us to think about this morning, like I said at the beginning of of service, is when we don't take into consideration that a central part of the Bible is inviting us to change. (laughs) then we won't notice change in the Bible, right? I approached the Bible growing up that these these authors of the scriptures, they approached God with never changing beliefs and it was the same belief from Genesis to Revelation. Then I got to seminary and I'm like, this is representation of over like thousands and thousands of years. Like between Jonah and the end of the Old Testament is like 600 years, how many of you have the same beliefs you had when you were a kid? Right? So the, the central identity of the Bible, part of that is to invite us to change along with humanity's ongoing relationship with God. So we're going to talk just a little bit about that. And we're going to look at the, at the book of, of Jonah and how it invites us to reimagine God, right? To reimagine who God might be is the Bible one of the Bible's central purposes. But let me set the backdrop of Jonah for us before we look at Jonah. The 6th century was the point of national crisis for Israel. Because of some decisions that Solomon made and we all know one of Solomon's greatest attributes was the amount of marriages he had, right? Why did he marry so many in the 6th century? Because it was politically beneficial for Israel. But that led to a lot of openness and, and not solidarity with God's plans especially. And so it led to a... Parsing out of the kingdom to other kingdoms, and it actually led to the fracture of northern and southern Israel, was a lot of the decisions that King Solomon made. And so the greatest crisis came along when the northern kingdom was carried off and exiled into Babylon. This all led to the promised land no longer being Israel's. I don't know if you've noticed in the Old Testament, the promised land is a big deal, right? And so, if they lose the promised land, that causes a huge crisis in the heart of all of Israel. This land was theirs, promised by God. And so, Judahites, who were in the northern kingdom, were carried off into Babylonian exile, and they had lost not only the promised land, but the temple for the Judahites was the physical presence of God. And guess what? It was destroyed. So if you think that God's physical presence is in the temple and it is also obliterated, not only is your land gone, but you feel like the presence of God is gone. I cannot overestimate how much of a crisis this was for Israel. This was the experience the the Judahites had for hundreds of years. They spent that time processing why this happened Why they spent all sorts of questions and wrote them down to understand one fundamental question. How could God let this happen? Why were were they abandoned by God? And why do we not have the promised land that God made to us as far back as Abraham? Imagine the top half of the continental United States being taken over by a foreign power state lines deleted, and all of the inhabitants carted off to another nation and all places of worship destroyed in the United States. I can guarantee you that that would lead to an identity crisis over what it meant to be an American for decades, even centuries to come. And these questions, these laments, these processing of an entire people is what we call the Jewish Bible or the Christian Old Testament. And even more so, Israel had been promised something by God, and the 6th century BC crisis exile leads to that fundamental identity crisis because that promise seems to be gone forever. The radical thing to understand here is that without this crisis moment in the 6th century BC, the Bible as we know it wouldn't exist because they were processing what had happened to their whole people. This pivotal event is what forced the Judahites to their knees and forced them to engage their past and reimagine God for their present and their future. The ancient Judahites, who would later be known as Jews, had to tell their story, and they had to process it in order to move on to a better future. And this is critical to understand as we read the Bible, especially the Old Testament and what Jesus is hearkening back to in the New Testament. The Bible was born out of crisis. And my friends, that's one of the most encouraging things to me because we can go to it in our crisis as well and process it. Asking the critical question, what is God up to here and now, especially in light of this crisis? And all this brings us to the book of Jonah, which all of that backstory doesn't make it sound like a great kid story, does it? And yet, I grew up with I. We made big paper mache whales, and my brother was Jonah, and I got to eat him and gobble him up, and then spit him out on the on the shore. Right? I loved the story of Jonah, and I think any of us who were raised in the church were all really familiar with the book of Jonah. But this is the backdrop of where Jonah comes from. In this book, we see Jonah continue to avoid. He's a very stubborn guy, if you didn't notice. He avoided his divine call to go and preach to the Ninevites and call them to turn from their evil ways. In other words, give them a chance to repent and stop doing what they're doing. It, the backdrop is so important because Nineveh is actually the capital city of the Assyrian Empire who, who sacked the northern kingdom in 722 BC and carried off the Judahites into Babylon. That's Nineveh. And then the, harassed the southern kingdom of Judah for the rest of the 7th century until Babylon took control of the entire region. Apparently, the Assyrian army was said to be invincible, They were absolutely vicious to anyone who resisted their power, and they had a major part to play in Israel's 6th century crisis moment. I don't want to use an inappropriate analogy here, but God's willingness to give the Ninevites an opportunity to repent while they were still at the height of their atrocious power would be like God giving Stalin or Hitler an opportunity to repent at the height of their horrid atrocities against the people. That's how serious it was for Israel. No wonder Jonah was stubborn, right? That's why Jonah was so resistant. I'm not going to those people. He says it literally in the book. You'll be too gracious and kind to the Ninevites. It is God desiring them to stop and turn from their evil, to stop unleashing literal hell on earth like we talked about a couple of weeks ago. This invitation is what Jonah was called to do. And I think we can all understand why Jonah would be so stubbornly resistant to that call. Who with any active sense of justice would want to go and give them an opportunity to repent from their wicked ways? They needed to pay for what they've been doing. They needed to be judged and sentenced instead. Why would God show any compassion towards those who mean to destroy God's people? Like Jonah, many would want God to unleash wrathful fire from heaven upon them rather than give them a chance to be redeemed. Can I hear an amen? (laughs) Jonah wanted nothing to do with these godless, warmongering people out of fear that they might actually listen and repent. So, we know the rest of the story. To avoid God's call, he boarded a ship. The ship encountered a storm and he confessed to the ship, all non-believers, by the way, that he was the reason that the storm was happening to them and they should throw him overboard. And we know what happens when he's thrown overboard, swallowed up by a fish and vomited out three days later onto the shore to where he should go and resume his divine call. And he had brought God's wrath upon that boat. He then said that they needed to toss him overboard, which they did and he was swallowed up by a giant fish. When he was vomited up on the shore though, he finally went and headed to Nineveh, but still with a terrible attitude, (laughs) still with a really bad attitude. And I I love this as a, from a pastor's perspective, because he gave the shortest worst sermon ever when he got to Nineveh. Shane, would you bring up his sermon? This is his whole sermon. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And then he stomps away. Some of you would like me to have an eight-word sermon, right? (laughs) Eight words. That's Jonah's... uh, Then Jonah's worst fears were realized, and you're supposed to laugh at that point because what about that would make anyone know what he's talking about, first of all? Second of all, repent and honor God. Forty more days and your whole nation's going to be overthrown by the word of the Lord, right? Nothing. Nothing. Then his worst fears are actually realized. Even though he gave the absolute worst sales pitch ever, they were all convicted. Everyone in the city, including the king and the cows, the livestock, repented. Supposed to laugh at that. Like the author wants, the cows are repenting after that horrible sermon? My word, right? They all repented and they stopped unleashing hell on others and began to seek justice instead. Because of this, we are told that God changed God's mind about the calamity that God was planning to rain down on all of Nineveh. Could anything be worse in Jonah's mind? The last thing Jonah said in the book is, I knew you would be kind and gracious. How many of you have been there before, right? I knew you're going to do that. Be so kind and gracious. This is a great story that echoes Jesus' words, and I I have this quote up here too. The whole book of Jonah kind of points to what Jesus is saying here, that love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For in so doing, you will be perfect just as your heavenly father is perfect. Jonah, he's, Jesus is uh, mirroring this theme in the book of Jonah, that God is a God of gracious love. And when you show even grace to your enemies, you're doing exactly what God would do. Yet there's another, there's a problem with Jonah. And his name is Nahum, another prophet. Nahum's book is three chapters long. Jonah is four. And Nahum, and it's easy to remember because you just hum after saying nay. Nahum has a different interpretation of the Ninevites' fate. He says in his book that God hates them. Nahum celebrates the demise of Nineveh, 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 Nineveh and interprets it as an act of God. Listen to how Nahum ends his entire book. Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall, for who has not felt the endless cruelty? That's what he's saying about Nineveh. So what do we do? Is this a contradiction between Nahum and Jonah? What are we supposed to do with these vastly different books about Nineveh's fate? And this is the translation of Nahum in in what I would say. God destroyed Nineveh and everyone cheered as if it was Boise State somehow winning the Super Bowl. (laughs) That's Nahum's translation of the Ninevites' fate. Both Jonah and Nahum have very different perspectives of how God felt about Ninevites. Is Is this a contradiction? And if not, what are we to make of this? Well, my friends, if we are reading the Bible literally, this is one of those contradictions for sure because neither Nahum or Jonah can be wrong, right? But if we take each book seriously, we find that they are both written at vastly different times for vastly different purposes. Nahum lived at the time of Nineveh falling, like during the fall of the empire. And historically speaking, Nahum is right. Nineveh fell to Babylon in 612 BC and he interprets their fall as an act of God. Jonah was written more than 100 years after Nineveh's fall and after Israel returned from Babylonian exile in 538 BC. The author of Jonah isn't interested in the slightest in recording history. Everyone in Israel knew that Nineveh had fell in Assyria Was destroyed by Babylon. If they had actually repented, history itself and the Bible would be dramatically changed today. And then there's one of the stars of Jonah. How can we tell that he's not interested in writing history? The fish, right? A whale swallowing someone and them staying alive is ludicrous. And you're supposed to think that that's ludicrous. Why? Because it's a metaphor, right? He is writing a parable. The author says that the fish goes so low, and you can read this in the book of Jonah, the fish goes so well to the bottom, and I picture a humpback whale. Anybody else picture a humpback whale? That's what I picture Jonah gets swallowed up by. The fish, the whale goes so low that it enters the place of the dead, Sheol. Now, we've gotten to the bottom of the ocean. We haven't found Sheol there, right? So, again, the author is trying to tell us a parable to challenge Israel's current conception of God. Reimagine God bigger than they were familiar with before. Why? They are asking this question. Is God more inclusive, more forgiving, and more gracious than we previously thought? I remember when I went off to seminary, it was the first time, I, born and raised in Nampa, Idaho, you don't get out much. It's just the truth, right? And I was homeschooled on top of that, and you really didn't get out much, right? Driving to Boise felt like driving to a different state. That's what it, my, my childhood was like. It, it, our whole family, it was, it was a big day event, right, going to Boise. When I went to seminary, I went to this foreign land called Kansas City, but it was a huge culture shock for this Nampa, Idaho white boy, right? There's just all these different cultures, and I encountered people from different faiths at my seminary. We had Muslim scholars come in, Jewish scholars come in, and also students from the universities who are also adherents to those faiths, and I got to know them on a, in, like, be friends with people who are not Mormon, Nazarene, or Methodists, right? Which is pretty much all of Idaho, right? I got to know people from other faiths, and it, it led to some deep theological, like, turning over in my mind because I'm like, wait, they are incredible people. And my upbringing says that they're going to burn in hell for all of eternity. Something doesn't match up with my experience here. So I needed to go back to scripture and reimagine my theology, right? Theology, when you break the word down, is just simply God talk. Theology is an ongoing conversation with God and with each other. And when we refuse to change that, that's when we refuse to grow, right? And so that growth is just really, really important. Well, why is Israel reimagining their concept of God? Because they had the same thing with the Babylonians. They spent 70 years in Babylonian exile. They raised children there. They buried relatives there. And in fact, when Persia came and conquered everything and gave the all clear, do you notice that Israel's kind of this kicked around nation, Assyrians, Babylonians, like go through the alphabet of, of uh, horrible empires that just takes them over one empire at a time, right? Crisis moment after crisis moment after crisis moment. Persia gives the Judahites the all clear to go back to their promised land, and many Judahites actually stayed behind. Familiarity can breed contempt, but it can also breed acceptance. So much so, and I love this. This is such a nerdy thing to love, but I love this. (laughs) They stayed behind to such an extent that Babylon would become a center of Jewish life and thought for the next 1,000 years. The Babylonian Talmud is one of the most authoritative texts in the Jewish faith, and it was written there during that 1,000-year period. So in this context, Jonah tells the story of God's expansive mercy for non-Israelites. The book of Jonah is actually wrestling with this question. Maybe God loves other people too. Maybe God loves other people too. And to do this, the author used a clearly fictional account of a long-gone ancient enemy to express this newfound belief or at least hope that God is more inclusive than they had given God credit for before. Contact with other people, different cultures, cannot help but broaden our view of ourselves, the world, and God. Amen? Both Nahum and Jonah are works of wisdom. Reimagining God in their current experience of the here and now. And my friends, we're invited to do the same when we come to the Bible. We need them both. We need both Nahum and Jonah to understand the whole point of Scripture God's reveal, God's revelation of God's self to us. Both Nahum and Jonah are works to understand this reimagination of God's revelation. And as you can see from 612 BC to 548 BC, Israel's theology of God progressed. From a God who delights in wiping people off the planet just because they're enemies of Israel, to a God of mercy, inclusivity, and forgiveness. One of the miracles of the Old Testament, I would tell my theology students all the time, Israel actually went from a polytheistic go- uh, culture, worshiping multiple gods, but Yahweh was their favorite. In Babylon, and this is, okay, another nerdy thing. When an empire would conquer a foreign empire, they would say, your God must be the most powerful because you conquered us, right? So what would Israel do when they're in Babylonian ca- captivity? Well, the Babylonian gods must be the most powerful God because they conquered us. The miracle of the Old Testament is that Israel actually went from being a polytheistic faith to a monotheistic faith in Babylonian exile. There is no God but Yahweh. That's when Isaiah says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. In Babylonian exile, that's a miracle (laughs) in the ancient Near East. That is just unfathomable. No other culture did that when they were conquered. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, Yahweh, is one. Powerful. I guess that wasn't so nerdy. That's pretty sacred. But the Bible does this. This is just Jonah and Nahum, my friends. The whole Old Testament does this. If you really want to dive in and see this, look at 1 and 2 Samuel and First and 2 Kings. Everyone to read those for your devotionals, right? First and 2 Kings, get through that really fast. And then even more so, First and Second Chronicles. Such a fun couple of books to get through. But there's 500 years of difference between these books. And they're saying the same thing, but reinterpreting it differently based on their experience with God. Powerful. And then we get to the New Testament. First and second Chronicles is probably written during the time of Alexander the Great, yet another empire conquering Israel. And they're reimagining God in that crisis moment. They essentially tell the same story, but yet interpret the past in a difficult present circumstance to hear God afresh and anew for the future. So often we treat the Bible as a book of answers rather than a collection of writing that is literally inviting us to continuously change and reimagine God in our present circumstances. This is the difference between a living word and a dead letter. The Bible isn't trying to tell us what to think. It is trying to think with us over the questions of our day. The Bible isn't about answers. It's about wisdom. The wisdom to discern truth together as we move forward as the body of Christ. What's at stake for the ancient writers is what is at stake for us today, our view of God. My friends, I have learned this deeply, that when my beliefs about God never change, it means I have an idol. My beliefs about myself have changed. My beliefs, can you imagine what relationship would work well if you held unchanging beliefs about that other person, right? Right? I can guarantee you as as a married man, it just doesn't work, right? Because you have these views of the other person and expectations along with how that person has to operate and they can never break free from that. We are in a relationship with a cosmic eternal God who is endlessly knowable. To have beliefs that say that they can't change means that we're done trying to know God. And it means we're done trying to know each other. That has some of the most harmful, harmful repercussions when we refuse to allow our beliefs to change. And the Bible is there to invite us into this reimagining of who God is for our time today. We can't read the Bible correctly if we assume that the people who wrote it had beliefs about God that never changed. It's because they changed that we read it today. You don't have God showing us, showing up as human one day in the flesh and not have your view about God change. Amen? God showing up as a human being never happened before, (laughs) and it radically changed our conception of God forever. I want to end with one of my favorite quotes um, from Diana Butler Bass this morning, who said, the whole message of the Christian scripture is based on the idea of metanoia, repentance. The change of heart that happens when we meet God face to face. Even a cursory knowledge of the history reveals that Christianity is a religion about change. The Christian faith always changes, even when some of its adherents claim that it does not. Amen? Let me read that last one again. The Christian faith always changes, even when some of its adherents claim that it does not. Amen. I want to give you just a few action steps for your Bible reading this week. Some of you came to me before service and said, I did my homework. I read the whole book of Jonah. I'm so proud of you. Um, If you like, that's amazing. Uh, I do send out a weekly newsletter with uh, questions before the sermon on Sunday. So if you guys want to get signed up for that newsletter, uh, just Contact Tyler at the front desk, and I send out just a, a question to get you thinking about our sermon today, and some of you went and read the whole book of Goda before this morning, so uh, you were all ready and prepared. As, as you read the Bible through the next week, ask yourself these questions: what, what view of God does this give me?" particular passage? And then ask, how does it compare to how God is revealed in other parts of the Bible? How does this mesh with what we see with, with Christ? How does this mesh with what we see in Genesis or, or Micah? And then ask yourself, how does this fit my current view of God? And then you can end your study by asking, how does my current experience with God cause me to reimagine who God is in my own past? And I have found that exercise to be so helpful to understand how God is moving here and now today. I want to invite you to uh, prepare for our time of uh, confession before we receive communion. Um, but can I, can I ask, do you do you feel more empowered to read the Bible in this series? I know that I do. I, I pray that it revitalizes your desire to read Scripture with fresh eyes um, as we move through this series.
0: Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to, we'd very much appreciate it if you would subscribe to this podcast as well as rate and review it. Also, if you'd like to connect with us, you can email us at amity.campus at boisefumc.org. That email will be in the show notes. Finally, as a smaller congregation, our budget is pretty tight. If you'd like to help out and donate to us, there is a link to do so in the show notes. Of course, no pressure, only if you're feeling called to give. But more income does mean possibly more content and better quality of content, as well as supporting our current ministries and those we'd like to expand on. Thank you. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day.